Audio Parfait. I'm wearing my go away. I'm introverting stuff. It's fine. I'm introverting every day. Okay. Uh, so I, uh, I was pondering the other day something you had said, and I thought to myself, he he really is like the Tiger King. <laughs> the question you have to ask is though, because it's not in the book. Does William S. Burroughs have a Prince Albert? Oh, gross. I don't want to think about that. You said he's like the Tiger King. Maybe they're related somehow. I mean, Burroughs' family did come from the South, did come from, you know, the Georgia area. So, inter. He's from, what, Oklahoma? Relations. Maybe. Okay. Well, anyway, welcome back to Open a Fucking a Book. Open a Fucking a Book. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, welcome to Open a Fucking Book. There we go. I'm Stephanie, and that weirdo across from me is Kevin. Hi. My handsome husband. Yeah, okay. And uh, we are on the final episode of William S. Burroughs. Yeah, it's been a long, Yay. crazy ride. and Yes, this weirdo is weird. I mean, there's a lot of other weirdos out there, but usually they die off a lot. I mean, this guy. So he, many drugs and he's living he, on forever. He's the fuck. He's the Keith Richards of of books, of literature. Yes. Yes. I and guess. Keith Richards actually is in his story, too, because he was friends with the Rolling Stones, which we'll come to find out in a little bit. So it all kind of. The Beatles, the Rolling the, Stones, who else? Oh, you'll find out because there's more. Okay. Well, let's get but into this. Before we get to that, uh, some good news. Oh, no, no more no cardiac beeps. equipment yeah. monitor. No more beeps or buzzes or anything like that. She's uh, She's been given the all clear to have it taken off. Well, that's because the batteries died and the doctor was out of the office. But hey. hey we'll take a win when we can take a win. Yeah, because otherwise I'd still be wearing it for a couple more days. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So when we left last left Bill, Ian had just died. The love of his life that he, you know, he fucked up that relationship just like he does every relationship. But the love of his life just died. And James was worried that he might be losing the will to live. So they got him a teaching gig over in Colorado. So he books a train to Boulder mid-July 1976, where he was to spend two weeks teaching. That's a nice Boulder. Yeah. <laughs> he was to spend two weeks teaching at the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics and at the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. Nice. A mouthful to say. Newly set up by Allen Ginsberg at the Chogyam Trungpa's Buddhist Center. Okay, I, I, there's a Most of the time I'll just I'll just call it Naropa or the Buddhist Center so I don't have to say all that shit again. Cuz I'm sure it's about hard it's hard enough to hear it as it is for me to say it. So. Yeah, that's probably good for you. Yeah. Uh, this was also the year 
of Billy Jr.'s illness. Billy Jr. was already in Boulder with his new girlfriend, Georgette LaRue, when Bill James, Richard, and Stephen Lowe arrived for the July season. Bill took one look at him and knew that something was seriously wrong. Billy was coughing up blood in alarming quantities. Uh, isn't any quantity an alarming quantity? Well... When it's your kid? Yeah, I was... When I had my tonsils taken out and I was coughing up blood, they told me a little bit is fine. He didn't have his tonsils taken out. <laughs> yeah. This I, is I'm just figuring, waking up one day and coughing up blood. Yeah, it's probably from all the drugs and alcohol and shit. You know, trying to be like daddy. Yeah. But his doctor, a Seventh-day Adventist had made the obvious diagnosis that he was nervous. Okay, so you're coughing up blood because you're nervous? It was his it was his nerves. He was he was anxious. He was nervous. That, that that's what was that's what was doing it. Uh Billy had had another hemorrhage and James called his uncle, Dr. Pat Borelli in Kansas City, who recommended Dr. Ewing. Dr. Ewing immediately diagnosed cirrhosis. That's what I was going to say. And said it would be fatal unless he had a liver transplant. Bill went to see Georgette and Billy's wife, Karen, at the Yishi house, is where they were staying there at uh, in Naropa, and started to explain it to them, but he broke down in tears. Then Billy had a third hemorrhage and was transferred to Colorado General in Denver for emergency uh, protocaval shunt procedure. So he was getting a shunt put in his liver. He had lost a lot of blood. The bypass was unsuccessful, and Billy was taken to intensive care in a coma. It looked as if he would die. His only hope was a liver transplant. Karen, Georgette, Bill, and James all stayed in Denver, waiting for a liver donor to appear. Even if a donor was found, it was a very risky operation with a 30% mortality rate on the table. Then, with just 24 hours before they thought Billy would die, a liver became available. Nice. They spent hours sitting in the waiting room until the staff told them to go home. They said they would call him. The operation took 18 hours. But it appeared to be a success. Oh, okay. Billy finally, finally recovered, but he was in hospital for five months. James and Richard Elevick... James' boyfriend, drove Bill to Denver to visit Billy three or four times each week in a borrowed Jeep until they returned to New York at the end of November. Bill stayed on to be close to Billy, making occasional short trips to New York to take care of business. January 97, or 97, 77, uh, Billy was discharged and Burroughs rented a room for him at the Boulderado Hotel in Boulder. Bill stayed on all winter to be near him, giving a winter course at Naropa to help any, to pay any expenses. He sometimes had to leave town to make money, such as a European reading tour from September to October, beginning in Berlin. Otherwise, he saw him every day. So he took over his parents' job and was now taking he, care of his kid. He was finally doing his job. Yeah, as a parent at 60 years old. Yes. Nice. Yeah. But it's just, at some point, I mean, it's just good for him to step up at some point. He didn't take care of his mother when she was dying. So his son's, you know, not doing well. So he needs, you know, he start worrying about somebody other than, you know, Willie Musburrows. 
Yeah, but I mean, you shouldn't shower your kid with money and stuff. Give him love. Well, I mean, that's what he's trying to do now. He's trying to be there for him. So I guess better late than never. Yes, I suppose. Billy should really have had full-time care or have been sheltered accommodations. He had a breakdown. He threw as much of his furniture out the window he could from his fifth-floor room at the Boulderado, including the chairs. The hotel ejected him. As, you know, you do when a guest starts throwing all your furniture out the fucking window. Yeah, that's kind of fucked up. So, a little bit before this, uh, just uh, December of 76, Bill had finally moved in to 222 Bowery, known as The Bunker. It was to become a legendary address for Burroughs, along with the Beat Hotel, but he only lived there continuously for three years, all of 79 until 81. These are known as the drug years. We have... Yes, we're waiting until the very last episode to finally get to the drug years. Even though his whole life he's been doing drugs. Yeah, but now it's it's he does more of them, and he gets pretty much everybody else to do a ton of drugs too. The the we'll get more to the bunker here in a little bit, but it it, it becomes like a drug den where he's and I don't get into the gangsters too much but he's he's got people who are dealing with gangsters he's got people who are dealing with illegal drugs being shipped in and it's not real sure if these are quality drugs or if these are drugs where you're going to take them and you're going to go blind yeah god he's an idiot you no know, some people don't learn Oh. Bill returned to Boulder after he went to uh, New York to take care of some stuff. He returned to Boulder in February of 77 in order to be near Billy. Banned from the Boulderado Hotel, Billy moved into the Yishi House, one of, Europa, one of the Naropa Institute's dormitories only a block away from Bill. Bill saw him every day. Bill took most of his meals in the Yishi House, and for a while, oh, Billy took most of his meals in the Yishi House, and for a while was a cook there. Nonetheless, he complained to Bill in a letter, a letter he never actually sent that he was living on raw potatoes while Bill was at home eating steak and sniffing cocaine. In fact, the Yishi house had enormous quantities of food. Bill had never seen so much food in stock. So Billy's just trying to make people feel bad for him. Bitching for the sake of yeah. bitching. His fellow residents in the Yishi house would often go, to his room and try to calm him down when he was having one of his episodes, and sometimes people stayed over to make sure he was all right. He was constantly losing his pills and recruiting people to find them. Sometimes he raved and threatened suicide, and they would impound his cutlery and any bills that, pills that looked dangerous. Once he took an overdose of Valium and had to be stomach pumped in the hospital. After that, the hospital refused to pre refused to prescribe any more to him. Billy's condition made life difficult for Bill, who had who had to keep his guns, knives, and liquor hidden away in case Billy took them. Once Billy kept Bill up all night raging and threatening suicide, Bill sat and talked to him, keeping himself awake with tea and coffee. Billy should have been in a sanatorium, but it was never a real choice because Bill didn't have the three or four thousand dollars a month it would have cost. Billy continued to believe that the situation was all Bill's fault, not his, and Bill learned to live with it. Who does that sound like? Everything I'm going through is somebody else's fault. 
My daughter. No, his father. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> See, my daughter blames me for all her shit. I was like, that sounds like my daughter. Billy wanted Bill to witness the mess he was in. He was paying him back. He lost his pills, but as Burroughs noticed, he never lost his morphine. On one occasion, he took his welfare check along with his passport to identify himself and started down to the bank. By the time he had got there, he had neither one. Fortunately, they were found and returned by a concerned member of the public. James offered to accompany him to the bank to cash it, but Billy was insulted. However, by the time he reached the bank, both were missing again. Burroughs commented, quote, Obviously, he just threw them away somewhere, but he had no memory of this. You mean to say you think I threw them away? I said, I think exactly that. You must have. What happened to him? So we went back over the route, but we never found them. His route would have taken him over the river, and Bill thought that Billy must have thrown them in. He went to the riverbank, but couldn't see anything. No, no. By the time you've gotten to the riverbank, it could have floated away. No, I mean, it depends on where in the river you throw it, because sometimes the current will pull stuff up onto shore, the tide will. That it, too, it or on... fish might nip at it. Or and... somebody sees a check and a passport in the in the water, and they grab it and they keep it. That too. Yeah. One of Billy's many problems was a fistula. You know what a fistula is? It's like an open wound, a part of the operation scar yeah. that had not healed properly. Because of this, Dr. Starzl warned him, so another, the doctor did a surgery, warned him to avoid sex. It was not a moral thing, just a grave danger of reopening the wound. Because it was, it was like an incision that never closed, but, you know, it's kind of... It's not, it's not open, even though it's not closed, but it will rip more through the activity of, you know. Sex. Yeah, because it's like probably closed on the outside, but not on the inside. Well, I think it's different. I think it's closed a little on the inside and not on the outside. And having sex, the inside will rip open even more. Yeah. yeah. Georgette had been stuck with Billy when he was first in the hospital and did as much for him as could be expected. But she was practical, down-to-earth woman who had her own life to lead. It was obvious that Billy had a short life expectancy and would be an invalid for life. He was making no efforts to improve his life. So, they separated. She moved back to Santa Cruz in October 77. Billy went to visit her on impulse without making any medical planning and found her living in a Me with a Mexican man. Although they were no longer together, he found it very hard to deal with and began drinking something the doctors had warned him to never, ever do. You get a lover transplant. You cannot drink. Yeah, because your chances of surviving another liver transplant are You can't drink. Zip. You can't smoke. You can't take any drugs unless they're prescribed to you specifically from a doctor. That's just common knowledge. But, I mean, he obviously doesn't care. No, he doesn't give a shit about himself. James noticed Billy's voice slurring and had first noticed that the uh, the vodka in Bill's apartment had been watered down in the summer of 77, even before his Santa Cruz visit. So this was going on before he even found out about Georgia. Bill didn't believe it at first because it was inconceivable <laughs> to him that anyone with a liver transplant, transplant could be stupid enough to drink. But it was true. And you got to think if, if Bill had got a liver transplant at some point, he probably would have gone back to drinking and doing drugs too. He's... Just on a high horse right now. Yeah, he's, yeah. Dr. Starzl had left, and the hospital had cut his morphine down to practically nothing. 
Billy could have gone on the methadone program with no trouble at all, something Burroughs thought would have been better for him than the morphine, but he chose not to. He knew the doctors at the hospital and got away with murder. Anytime he had been drinking too much or was feeling in bad shape, he checked into the hospital for a week as if it was a hotel. There was nothing Bill could really do to help him. He became impossible for the Buddhists to look after, and he was asked to leave the Yishi house. Allen Ginsberg took him in for a while as he looked for a place, but got fed up with Billy sitting around in the living room all day drinking and never throwing his beer bottles out. Allen didn't realize what a bad state Billy was in and kept encouraging him to look for a job. But Billy was too weak to stay out of the house for more than an hour, and in Boulder, he needed a car to get around. He asked Bill for the $500 needed for a car, but Bill refused, thinking that Billy would just give the money away. Like, you know, he obviously had done with his other shit. Yeah, he probably sold it for drugs and alcohol. Mm, Alcohol, at least. Billy had to go to Denver Hospital three times a week to get his morphine and for checkups. Finally, the commuting became too much of a burden, and he moved to Denver to a rooming house on the Colorado Boulevard full of bums and alcoholics, but close to the hospital. Hmm. The longest a transplant recipient had ever survived up until that point was seven years, so he knew he had a limited lifespan. The cocktail of drugs to prevent, prevent rejection puffed up his face, and the operation itself had left a hideous, half-open wound across his abdomen that meant he always smelled bad. Oh. He was ashamed of his appearance. He lived and looked like a street person wearing dirty clothes. He rooted around in trash cans, carrying home salvaged items of food and rubbish. Bill's old friends in Boulder kept their distance from him. Most people avoided him. No one realized how sick he was. I mean, you would... You smell him and you see him, you think, yeah, he's pretty fucking sick. In the summer of 79, changes were afoot back at Burroughs headquarters. James had now devoted four years to Burroughs and was having second thoughts about making making this his life work. He contemplated relocating back to Kansas. He decided that he could just as easily deal with publishers, agents, and arrange reading tours from his old university town of Lawrence, Kansas. So, in March 79... Williams Burroughs Communications relocated there. It was his long-term plan to get Burroughs to join him, but just before that came the Nova Convention. Mm -hmm. Fun name, isn't it? It is. 1978 ended with a celebration of Burroughs' work in New York. The original intent had been to organize a largely academic event, bringing together theorists and artists who revered Burroughs' work, But, in the end, it became a celebration of Burroughs as a celebrity with little academic or critical analysis of his work. A number of musical events and readings were arranged in Burroughs' honor, or, in some case, to increase the participants' own fame by association. Like, oh, I'll go do that because I have an album coming out in a month and I want people to to remember me. (laughs) Yeah, I can see Burroughs doing that. Any. Nine times out of ten when you see a celebrity on like WWE or something, it's because they got something coming out real soon. Or Saturday Night Live or anything like that. It's just the way celebrities work. Well, that well sometimes they're asked and it co- coincides with what they're working on. Yeah, uh, the majority of the time they're pushing something. Yeah, but they're also fans. They're not going to let non-fans. Sometimes. I mean, sometimes. It, yeah. 
The Nova Convention ran from November 30th until December 2nd, 1978. There was a book signing by Brian Jessen and Burroughs at Books and Company to launch The Third Mind, followed by film screening, a film screening at NYU and a reading by Kathy Acker. On Friday, there was a panel discussion with Maurice Girodis, Girodius, who, you know, remember, stole all his fucking money. Yeah. Uh, John Calder, Dick Seaver, and others at NYU, and evening performance by Laurie Anderson and Julie Hayward. Merce Cunningham and John Cage performed a dialogue, and Ann Wald- Waldman, Ed Sanders, Allen Ginsberg, and Peter Orlovsky gave reading. There was a midnight concert at the Mud Club with the B-52s, Ooh. who we saw in concert just a couple, a few years ago. Yes, it was a couple of years there, ago, yeah. yeah. Uh, suicide and the Stimulators. Saturday opened with panel discussion between Burroughs, Jisson, Timothy Leary, Les Levine, and Robert, Robert Anton Wilson. The final Saturday night program at the theater opened with a solo organ piece by Philip Glass, who was heckled by kids who wanted to see Keith Richards. They had presumably not seen the items in the press saying Richard had been had to cancel, and no one made a stage announcement to tell them. Uh, Richards was up for drug charges somewhere else and was not able, and the idea of being associated with Burroughs at the time would not have looked good for him. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that's very true. So you're up for drug charges and you're going to do a benefit or going to do a celebration for a notorious drug user. It's probably not the best bet. Yeah, but did all those people know that Burroughs was a notorious drug user yes. back then? Yes. And that's what his first three books were all about. Him traveling to get, to yeah, get, hey. to get dick and to get drugs. That's his whole shtick is he was a druggie. So James Gerholtz managed to get Frank Zappa to appear in his place. Holy shit. So the kids had someone famous to gap at. Frank read the talking asshole section from Naked Lunch and got a rousing reception. The event did a lot to establish Burroughs as the godfather of punk and place him in the center of the 70s, 70s youth movement. Far from being a generation of original beats, had now managed to take up a position in three different decades. Kerouac, the hard-drinking, loudmouth 50s. Ginsburg, the psychedelic, anti-war 60s man. And now, Burroughs represented all that was cool about the 70s. So pretty much just drugs and debauchery. And disco. Yeah. <laughs> but and, he didn't have anything to do with disco. He didn't have anything really to do with a lot of shit, but people looked up to him. I guess. In doing so, of course, the event lost any claim to academic inquiry and became an exercise in fame and an excuse for the downtown art scene to strut their stuff. This was the new boroughs who recognized the need to be commercial in order to survive in America. This was the Warhol era. The surface was everything. Fame, glamour, and success were what counted, not content. The sellout era. Uh, I guess you could call it that. It's the... Or decade. Trash on the inside, glamour on the outside. It's putting a fresh cane of paint on an outhouse, pretty yeah. much. Look how fancy this thing is. Just don't go in because it's full of shit. After five years of work, Bill finished the first draft of Cities of the Red Knight. Some sections had come to him completely in a dream. He explained that Cities was about, quote, it involves time travel. It's a book of retroactively changing history by introducing the possibility of a simple invention. Namely, 
the cartridge gun. That has been very much my concern recently. I've always been much interest, very much interested in the whole development of weaponry. Oh, yeah, because you know he's killed his. Well, he's always been big into guns ever since he was a little kid. You know, his, his dad got him into it when they would go out hunting. He always loved guns, and he'll continue to love guns until the day he dies. Burroughs dedicated the book to Brian Stephen Lowe for his research in pirates, Dick Seavers, his publisher, Peter Matson, his agent, and James Garaholt. James worked long and hard to knock the manuscript into shape. Burroughs had always depended upon his friends to assist him when it came time for the final draft. Allen Ginsberg played an important role in shaping both junkie and queer and worked on the early drafts of The Naked Lunch. The Naked Lunch itself was typed and shaped largely by Brian and Sinclair Biles. Wild Bill stuck photographs in the Peruvian jungle on the wall and shot them with his air gun. The soft machine was assembled and edited entirely by Allen Ginsberg and Brian Jessen in Paris while Burroughs was in Tangier, and Ian Somerville had a lot to do with both The Ticket That Exploded and Nova Express. This is how Burroughs had always worked. I'll write this stuff. You guys do the hard work. Because writing it is, I mean, you just you just put down your ideas on paper. He, he left it to everybody else to make them into a story. To edit it, to put it in order. To, to... make it to where people knew what the fuck he was talking about. Because yeah, half the time he just rambled. Yeah, when he would turn stuff in on his own, because he did that a couple times. They were always rejected. They... They kept sending it back, and he'd have to edit himself, and then he said, fuck it, and then he'd send it off. And yep. then as soon as he'd get it back and turn it in, yep. it would get accepted just yep. like that. So in 1980, when Burroughs felt he had enough material to complete Cities of the Red Knight, he assembled the final draft almost at random. He had two more or less complete narratives, the pirate story and Clem Snide, each in a separate folder. That were supposed to merge... So in the end, the two narratives that started off separate came together as one. With the matter of two converging narratives, James took one look and said, Whoa, Nellie, let's just undo this. <laughs> James made diagrams showing how different parts could fit together and finally made it gel together as a double narrative. This was the kind of input that Burroughs needed and wanted. A comparison of the two manuscripts show that the Gerholtz edit improved the book enormously, which is why Burroughs used it after making a few more changes of his own, and it was published in March of 81. Burroughs was then spending a lot of time with Steve Meyer, who acted very much as his personal assistant. Steve drove him to and from the airport, scored dope, and ran errands. It was a very uh, druggy period. Did I call him Steve earlier? Mm-hmm. It's Stu. Stu Meyer. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Steve, Stu, Stu, who cares? Yeah, who cares? S. Meyer. Stu kept a diary record of events Friday, October 5th, 1979. Giorno called the office late afternoon, tells me dinner with Bill is set for six. I left Reefer at home, but Al gave me some gummy strong shish, and I picked up a few glassines for men. For me and the old dock on Riverton, just east of Houston Street, Puerto Rican social clubs are lined up on the block, thriving marketplaces for Coke, dope, street yerba. Thursday, October 25th, 1979. Bill, quote, put that Coke away. We don't have to feed every vagrant vagrant nostril in town. I put it away before the guests arrive. Uh, and there's a, I just pulled, grabbed two. There's a bunch more, and they're just like that. 
just him just writing every little thing down in a diary, and it's 90% about drugs. Of course. John Giorno had pointed out that Bill's fame may have actually saved his life. This is another one of their druggy friends. Many of the junkies he was shooting up with in the bunker were also gay, and several of them subsequently died of AIDS. Burroughs' seniority meant that he always got the first shot, so he always had a clean needle and was never exposed to the exposed to the blood of the other people using the same one. They didn't they didn't change out needles. They all just used the same one because this was a time when AIDS was brand new. So essentially, he could have been the one spreading it. Well, he didn't have AIDS that we know of. Well, no, it it would have he wouldn't have lived to the old age that he did if he had had AIDS. It would have killed him pretty quick. He didn't have AIDS. Well, if he had HIV, it would have turned into AIDS eventually, because there's no treatment or anything for it. So if, if he had HIV or AIDS or anything like that, he wouldn't have lasted as long as he did. So he didn't have it, but who knows who did. They are obviously passing it back and forth, but the fact that he was, you know, the godfather of all this, he got first shot. So he never had to worry about using a dirty needle. I suppose, yeah. The bunker years, as I had said, were the drug years. Virtually everyone Burroughs knew or saw was continually smoking pot or hashish. Tie temple sticks, sniffing or shooting cocaine or heroin or swallowing half gram balls of opium. They talked endlessly about drugs, comparing the ones they were on now with others they had taken at other times, remembering spectacular highs and fantasizing about the highs of tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going to get so high tomorrow. Well, being high, like, that's, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's like, it's like you're drunk and all you can think about is how you can't wait to get drunk tomorrow. Does you have a problem. Yeah, yeah, you do have a problem. Burroughs chipped around on his reading tours. One time in L.A., everyone around him was sniffing heroin, and he got a light habit. It only took a few days for him to get hooked again. New York was awash with heroin. Soon Bill was fully addicted. Stu had access to large quantities of opium through, the ma- through a mafia connection. It was only available by the kilo and worked out about 4 to $5 a gram, Burroughs took it throughout the spring of 1980, and by June was stabilized on a gram of opium a day, plus street heroin, that he shot up. There was no question that if James had been living in New York City, he would have protested most vigorously. Yeah. But James was in Kansas. Bill knew that the situation could not continue indefinitely. Stu Meyer described it, quote, James is away, and the mice were playing. Here we were, William, Howard, and I, three dreamy guys. We all got into trouble. James came back, and William ended up in Kansas on methadone. William back in Kansas, because he had been a naughty boy ever since that look on his face. Fetitious apology about as sincere as a syphilitic choir boy. (laughs) Okay, so Stu's getting jealous because now... His... Well, he wants to take, yeah, James wants to take Bill back to Kansas and get him clean. Yeah, and Sue's going to lose his yeah, drug money. Yeah. and Stu doesn't want that. Bill needed three bags a day minimum, usually four, estimating that a bag was three quarters of a grain if you were lucky, and a bag was $10. So 30 to 40 bucks a day you're spending. Back then, I mean, and this is the early 80s, 30, 40 bucks. 
In New York, there was a lot of cocaine mixed with the heroin, and that tended to make people use more heroin in order to smooth out the coke. Bill couldn't stand cocaine by itself. He hated the teeth grinding and the poor coordination that would only take a mix with heroin, methadone, or opium. So, well, I don't like the way Coke makes me feel. I'll still take it as long as you mix it with some other stuff. Yeah, because that makes complete sense. I was like, I don't like gin, but mix it with a Coke and I'll drink it. Why drink it at all? Gin and tonic. You have gin, gin and Coke. People drink gin and Coke. Uh, yeah, that's you, can, you can mix anything with anything. It's not the strangest thing I've ever heard. But it was, why drink it at all? Just drink the Coke. Why take the cocaine at all if you just shoot up heroin if that's all you want? That doesn't make any sense. Maybe because he thought by mixing it, he wasn't going to get addicted. Because that's what a lot of druggies do. I they mean, think, you know, hey, if I'm only doing a little bit and I'm mixing it with something else, then it's not as bad. So they're, you know, they're like, they're trying to lessen how... Lessen the effects of both of them? No, they're trying to lessen how it's affecting them in their mind to make it seem like they're not really hurting the people around them, that they're not hurting themselves, and they're not becoming addicted to it. When in reality, they're becoming to get addicted to two separate drugs. Right. Yeah. They don't understand that it's actually worse on them than if they were not, if they were only doing one. Or they do know, but they're just delusional. They're de deluding themselves. Yeah. So he had been stockpiling methadone, brought, bought from Hunky. Remember him? Yeah. Haven't heard about him in a while. Who was getting 100 milligrams a day on the program, but only using 80 as a, re as a reserve stock in case things had got hot and he couldn't score. So Hunky was, was on this program where he was getting 100 milligrams of methadone a day. He'd use 80 and sell the rest to Bill, who would then stockpile it in case someday he needed it. Yeah, because that doesn't have a shelf life. <laughs> and I don't know what the shelf life of methadone would be. Well, with most medicines, the potency is about a year. So it depends on how long he was stockpiling it for. Hmm. And the fact that methadone is used to... But see, here's the thing. He was getting 100 milligrams a day. So that's... 20 milligrams he's buying a day to stockpile. And a year's worth of that, I'm, I'm sure he's probably using some of it at some point. Yeah. But the thing, methadone is used to treat people who are addicted to morphine and other drugs to get them to not be addicted to it anymore. And then they become addicted to the methadone. So That's the point. It, it, if, if, if he runs out, if he can't score, then he takes the methadone. It at least it'll help with his withdrawals and then, you know, takes that as a drug. Well, most of Stu's opium was gone and his connection had changed his name and disappeared, you know, as, as happens when you're in the mafia. So there was little hope of getting any more. Bill knew being on junk in New York City was not a long-term option. He was enrolled in a special celebrity program at 27 East, 92nd Street, near Central Park, ran by Dr. Harvey Carcass. Not Carcass as a dead person, but Well, Car I know. I was like, that's an interesting last K -A -R -K -U -S. name. K-A-R-K-U-S. Carcass. Yeah, I know. But that's an interesting last name for being a doctor. Yeah. That's kind of awesome. Yeah. Uh, this is where well-known actors and public figures went, uh, and appointments were always timed so they wouldn't run into each other. 
so you wouldn't have a tabloid person out there getting getting you know William S. Burroughs and Keith Richards on the same picture at the same time. Yeah. They asked if he wanted to join under assumed name, but he declined. He took one urine test, tested positive for heroin, got on the program. For the first three months, Bill had to go each day. After that, he began taking, uh, getting take-homes, so he'd get to do the stuff at home. Cost $100 a week. Most clinics were between $10 and $50 a week. Celebrity. Of things. course. Yeah. But it was still cheaper than Bill's habit. He joined the program more for financial necessity than any real desire to get off drugs. He's like, God, I love drugs, but fuck, I can't afford it. Yeah. He ain't done. It's a, it's a whirlwind. We feel the same way about other things. You know, like expensive cuts of meat. <laughs> you God, hate... I love filet mignon, but fuck, it's expensive. My Harry Potter obsession. Getting your hair done, getting your nails done. It's fucking expensive. I I suppose. God, I love Funkos. <clears throat> Fuck, they're expensive. They're really not, but when you're buying them all the time, they get expensive. Yeah, and I have a lot of them. Yeah. I love Loot Crate. Fuck, it's expensive. <laughs> Burroughs was to remain on the methadone maintenance program from 1980 until the end of his life, which is still a ways away, believe it or not. This meant that all of the books written in the States were created while opiated. Virtually all of Burroughs' writings was done when he was high on something. The Naked Lunch was written on marijuana and mahjong, and much of it was done when he was strung out on Eucadol, despite his many denials. The American books are all heroin and methadone novels. One effect of methadone is to radically suppress the sexual drive. Burroughs wrote a lot about sex in the final trilogy, but experienced it hardly at all. In addition, from this time he returned to the States, he was stoned on pot most of the time. He always smoked in order to write. He woke several times at night and would smoke a joint to get back to sleep. Which, you know, marijuana is, you know, whatever. There's nothing wrong with marijuana. Everything in moderation. Well, yeah. Everything. You drink it, you drink water in moderation. Because if you drink too much, your heart can stop. So everything in moderation. Alan was one of Bill's Frequent visitors, Ginsburg. I know we've had a lot of them over the past few weeks. Uh, their long friendship had matured to a stage where they would bicker for hours and end like an old married couple. <laughs> they had a deep reserve of love and mutual respect for each other that a few disagreements could not harm. Bill was irritated that Alan was judgmental about his drug taking, alcoholism, and lack of interest in Buddhism. In turn, he thought it was a failing of Alan not to see the value of telepathy, the magical kingdom, and Bill's other you know, concerns. <laughs> this sometimes led to a low level of a low level of antagonism, but they both seemed very comfortable with it. They were there. They these were surface dis disagreements that they had held for years. Yeah, they were pretty much best friends. He sees Brian Jisson as his best friend, but Ginsburg is definitely his longest friend. Because I don't he doesn't really you know doesn't have anything to do with Kells Elvin anymore. So that's a, Ginsburg is probably his longest friend. But he sees Brian as his probably best friend. But you know, he thinks everybody else who would look at it would probably say, Yeah, Al, Alan's your best friend because he's the one trying to save you from you. Yeah. Brian's your best friend. You think Brian's your best friend because he doesn't give a shit what you do. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there were 600 pages of material left over from city cities of the Red Knight, and after some of it was thrown away, a lot of it went into his next book, The Place of Dead Roads. Burroughs had a dream in which a Mexican was patiently trying to explain to a gringo, quote, these aren't unused roads, they are dead roads. <laughs> Billy continued to hover in Bill's consciousness as a nagging, unsolved problem. Oh, so you, you stop doing drugs and then you care about your son again. Well, he sees, as, sees him as a nagging, unsolved problem. His son. Yeah, that's... <sighs> At the end of 1980, Tiana, an old girlfriend of Billy's from Green Valley School, wrote and invited Billy down to Florida from Denver. She was newly divorced, wealthy, and had harbored a crush on him ever since they were at school together, but had no idea what a terrible state he was in. Burroughs wrote, quote, We thought maybe she would really look after him, and with her money, it would work out. She was picturing him as the person she remembered, this healthy person, this totally different person, before he was drinking. She must have gotten a terrible shock. I, I can imagine that opening your door to see this person you've had a crush on for so long, and then it's just... Yeah, the person you had a crush on died years ago, yeah. and now there's this husk of a person, a man left. James did try to warn her, but no one could have expected such a deterioration in someone so young. Didn't work out, but she didn't abandon him. She put him up in one of the empty apartments that she owned, so... Oh, that's nice of her. You know, she comes, you know, I mean, she didn't owe him anything. She's like, hey, I'm divorced. I've had a crush on you for a long time. Why don't you come down and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see where it happens. He's a mess. She's obviously got at least some of her shit together. So she could have just said, oh, God, no, get the fuck out of here. But she didn't. She goes, let me, you know, we're not going to be together, but let me help you out. That's, I mean, that's pretty, for a fairly nice person, seems like. And, of course, Billy's going to do Billy shit. He got completely drunk on malt liquor and passed out by a creek where he was picked up by the police and finished up in West Volusia County Hospital in DeLand, Florida. You know DeLand, Florida? No. Hmm. Over the years, Billy Jr.'s health had deteriorated further. He was in pain much of the time. He and Bill frequently spoke on the phone and exchanged correspondence, but his decline seemed to be inevitable. There were a few occasions when Bill and Billy did readings together, but Billy Jr. had terrible stage fright. But I mean, plus the fact that he, he didn't look great and he stunk. You wouldn't want to get up in front of a bunch of people yeah, and read. No. Alan gave him $25 as a teaching fee for talking to a class at Naropa. Billy once made good money doing a radio documentary on his father, but he was basically unemployable, and when he did get a job, he never held it for long. He drank a lot and was unpredictable, selfish, difficult to be with. He was on social services, but he was very negligent about going to collect his checks and going through the bureaucracy needed to get the money. Most people nowadays know what it's like to have to go through the government to get some type of money, whether it be unemployment, disability, social security, anything like that. It's a fucking shit show. I have no idea what it was like in the 80s, though. Yeah, I don't know either. As soon as he would get money, he'd give it away or spend it. 
Bill sent him $150 a month, which is funny since that was what he was getting for a long time from his parents before it got bumped to $200 a month. Yeah, so it's all coming is. full circle. Yeah. It was enough for him to live on. If he sent any more, Billy would only give it away. Sometimes he gave everything away, and he had no money for food. Bill was uncritical. He had never been much good at holding down a job himself. It obviously wasn't going to work out with Tiana, so Bill paid for Billy to run a ro- Bill paid for Billy to run a room in Deland. Ten days later, Billy called one of the social workers at West Volusia County Hospital, saying, "Quote, you'd better get over here. I'm really sick." The man went over, looked at him, called an ambulance. Billy died. Billy died six hours later, the morning, March 3rd, 1981. James received a telephone call at the bunker and told Bill at breakfast. Bill rose and went to his room where he sobbed uncontrollably for half an hour. The cause of death was given as a heart attack. There was an autopsy, but Bill never learned of its results. Bill did not go to Florida. He attended a short ceremony at Trunkpus Center in New York, conducted by one of the Tibetans. Bill was happy that Billy had been giving five additional years, though Billy himself may have, prefer- may have preferred otherwise. Honestly, Billy just probably just wanted to die. That's probably why he kept drinking and... Yeah, giving away all his money, didn't care if he ate or anything like that. He began dreaming about Billy. Alan salvaged Billy's papers that were still in Boulder and forwarded them to Burroughs. Burroughs said, quote, He left these papers, obviously meant for me to see. There's a curse delivered against me, which he never sent. These out, this outpouring of hatred. But the essential thing is that he made me responsible for everything that ever happened to it. On and on. It was quite insane. But it's that thing that Billy had of making someone else completely responsible for everything he did. Again, Like father, like son. Right. Burroughs could never fully understand why Billy blamed him for everything. He recognized that he had been a terrible father and neglected his son. He had not shown him the love he so desperately wanted and had been unable to mend the relationship in Boulder during the only sustained time they spent together. But Burroughs refused to accept that by killing the boy's mother, he had destroyed Billy's life. Wow. You know what? It wasn't killing the boy's mother that destroyed his life. It's killing the boy's mother separating him from his sister, and then never going and seeing him. Yeah. You, you, it, so what happened to Joan was an accident. He didn't mean to shoot her in the head. So that happens, and then you move back to, to Florida, where his parents were living at the time. You move in, you get your shit together, and you take care of your son. You can literally write a book from anywhere. Yeah. But... With his story and the whole reason we're doing this podcast is he couldn't have written anything that he wrote without having a fucked up life. Yeah, no, the books that he wrote, he you can write without doing that, but the books he wrote specifically, he needed the life that he led in order to write those books. What it comes down to is what you have to look at is what's more important. Those books or the life of a kid who didn't ask to be born was born into a fucked up situation, and then the two people who were supposed to take care of him didn't. That's very true. He did not understand why Billy felt that he was responsible for his distress, for the drinking and drug taking that eventually led to his death. Bill's immediate reaction to Billy's death was to start going over to Rivington Street himself 
to score heroin, despite being on methadone. After a busy schedule of readings to promote Cities of the Red Knight, Bill went to Lawrence in June to spend a month with James to sort out his feelings about Billy and recover. James wrote to Julie, Billy's half-sister, to inform her of his death. He never got a reply. Probably because her, her dad didn't let her know about him. Well, no, she, well, I mean, Julie knew about her brother. She knew she had a brother. Um, but they never saw each other again. And she may have gotten the letter, read it, and then just said, okay, whatever. Yeah. I mean, you, we don't know what was going through her head. She might have been distraught. She, she might have died herself. Who knows? I just, it, it's funny that he, Billy dies from this shit and that he goes to get heroin. Which is, reminds me of what happened when um, the guitarist from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the original guitarist, when he died. And, um, what's his fucking, the, the lead singer of Red Hot Chili Peppers, what's his name? Anthony Kiedis. We knew that. Okay. Yes. So when, and when Anthony Kiedis found out, everyone was like, oh, well, your best friend in the world just died of a heroin overdose. That's going to shock you out of doing it. No, he said, he said when he found out, he did the biggest amount, the largest amount of heroin at one time that he'd ever done in his life. After he found out that his best friend had overdosed, because that's just I don't know, how he coped with it. So I'm guessing it's the same thing. You're so distraught with the world, you just want to escape. So he went and got heroin, took it. While he was on methadone. Can't imagine that's a good combination. No, probably not. Hey, all you book people. Do you love wrestling? Do you hate wrestling? Well, I got the podcast for you. I know it's not real, but that had to hurt. Is a podcast Stephanie and I do on all the things we love and hate about wrestling today. Get a viewpoint from people who are strictly fans and live outside the industry. So go to audioparfait.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Meanwhile, Burroughs' profile was slowly increasing in the U.S. The culmination of all this activity was an appearance was with an appearance on NBC's Saturday Night Live. The writers' wing of the show was famously awash with hash and cocaine, and the show itself was peppered with drug taking in jokes. Burroughs appeared in a six-minute segment on November 7th, 1981. He was introduced by actress and model Laura Hut- Lauren Hutton, who said, quote, I am very pleased tonight to introduce a man who, in my opinion, is the greatest living writer in America. Reading sections from The Naked Lunch and Nova Express in his first television appearance ever, here is Mr. William Burroughs. First appearance on, in America. He appeared in TV in England already. Saturday Night Live musical director was Hal Willinger, added a subtle soundtrack of the Star-Spangled Banner to Burroughs' reading from Dr. Benway to great effect. There was no mention of the beat generation. His appearance on Saturday Night Live helped him to throw off his tag, this tag, and appears as an absolute unique voice in American letters. So it's a, it's a big deal for him. Yeah, I mean, you're going to let one of the biggest known drug addicts in America on Saturday Night Live, but then you're going to kick off people and never let them be on there again for saying the word fuck? Well, but this is the thing. Back then, everybody at Saturday Night Live was doing masses of massive amount of drugs. Chevy Chase used to have coke parties. They used to go to Chevy Chase's house after they'd film, 
and they just have giant Coke parts. That the entire everybody in Saturday Night Live was high pretty much all the time. Wow. He was spending the summer in Lawrence hoping to complete the place of Dead Roads and also to see if he liked it well enough to move there. He wanted somewhere where he could buy real estate and settle down. Lawrence had the advantage of being cheap. Yeah, Kansas is a lot cheaper than New York. James lived there. James lived there among his old hippie friends, so there was a social scene already in place. It was also a return to the Midwest. In a sense, he had come full circle. In December 81, he rented an old two-story stone house five miles out of town, had a huge barn that was ideal for target shooting. There's plenty of land, a fish pond, great view from the top of a small hill. Come the spring, Bill could sit out on his back porch, smoke a joint. He sometimes caught a glimpse of a gray cat and began to put food out, but he could never get close to it. Once, walking back to the house, after a shooting session in the barn with his friend Bill Rich, he saw the cat jump down from the porch. Quote, it's about six months old, gray and blue cat with green eyes. Call them Ruski. Aww. One April evening, just before dark, Bill stepped out his back porch, and there it was, a gray cat. With him, a large white cat he had not seen before. The white cat was friendly, purring, and rolling at Bill's feet. It became a terrible nuisance, sitting on top of the TV, pawing at Bill's typewriter, sitting in the sink, and on the food counter. One day, Ruski came in and jumped onto Bill's lap, quote, nuzzling and purring and putting his little paws up to my face, telling me he wanted to be my cat. Oh, that's sweet. I, I love cats. I adore cats. At first, Bill called him Smokey. He did not know yet that he was a Russian blue, and then changed his name to Ruski. Bill kept a cat journal, which he later turned into The Cat Inside. Bill became a confirmed cat lover. Quote, I prefer cats to people, for the most part. Most people aren't cute at all, and if they are cute, they very rapidly outgrow it. That's very true. Yeah. His cat became part of him. His Yeah, his cat became a part of him, and he decided it was time to wean off methadone. It was done slowly, over two or three months, so he hardly felt it. Throughout the winter of 81 into 82, Burroughs had worked on a manuscript for The Place of the Dead Roads, which was now nearing completion and contained a lot of gay sex, perhaps as a form of sublimation, as he lacked a partner. But it was usually integral to the story. The sex was less stylized than in Wild Boys or other earlier books, where it served as a different function and often consisted of mechanical repetition. So this was more... This sex was more... Romanticized? Romantic, you know, making love, you know, lust type sex, then just gotta do it, gotta do it, gotta do it, gotta do it. William Burroughs Communication had a cash flow problem. The second part of their book advance of $8,000 was not forthcoming until they handed in the completed book. The final draft took longer to prepare than expected because there again were two distinct versions. Burroughs was pleased with the place of the dead roads to him, it meant for his own it, to him it met his own strict criteria the book is a murder mystery but when james garaholtz read the manuscript in the first draft he easily picked out the killer saying it was quite clear who it was and why burroughs himself had not yet realized who it was <laughs> quote 
I'd really written clearer than I realized. I couldn't tell myself who had done it, but when James told me, it could only have been one person. And I will, when I looked back over it, he was right. Bill made sure that the answer was a bit less obvious. So I wrote this murder mystery. Tell me what you think. Reads like three pages. Oh, he did it. Did he? <laughs> I, don't, I haven't finished the ending yet. I don't know who did it. No, 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 no. He did it. You need to. You need to fix this. The worst thing you could have is a murder mystery without a mystery. It's kind of like all the the uh, SVU episodes I watch. I know who the killer is before the end of the episode. Well, I mean, most of those procedurals you pretty much know. Sometimes they throw you through a twist. Like, they end the murder mystery real quick, and then there's a bigger story on top of it that they find out. But through most of those, that, Bones, all those shows, you can usually pick out who the murderer was fairly quickly, unless they don't introduce you to them until the end of the show. Especially when you watch as many of them as we have. Yeah, I watch a lot. I know you do. (laughs) Burroughs began painting by accident in February 1982. He had a new double-barrel Rossi 12-gauge shotgun. He was trying it out using a sheet of plywood as a target and number six shot. When he looked at the target, there were some very interesting striations in the wood where the shot had stripped away the layers. The gun had heavy recoil, and it jarred him to shoot it, so he called the piece sore shoulder. (laughs) Makes sense, I guess. It became his first, definitely not last, shotgun piece. All through March, Bill blasted away at prepared services with double zero shot. He quickly realized the potential of shooting at paint cans and began positioning containers of paint against the wood and shooting them, causing explosions of color all across the surface. He began to add collage elements, such as photographs and pictures torn from magazines, just as he did with his scrapbooks. At the time, he never expected to sell any of them. In fact, he didn't regard it as anything serious. Then, Tim Leary came to town, touring with G. Gordon, L- G. Gordon Liddy. After their lecture, there was a reception at the Stone House, and Tim began, became the first person to buy one of Bill's paintings, paying him $10,000. Holy fuck. You got to think that the majority of that $10,000 is simply because it's William S. Burroughs. If you or I were to go shoot a gun at a piece of plywood with some paint, doesn't matter how pretty it is, we ain't getting $10,000 for it. No. No. February 27th, 1983, Burroughs' brother Mort died at the age 73. Bill and James flew to St. Louis for the funeral. Mort was survived by his wife and their twin daughters. Bill and James didn't stay for the burial as they had planned to catch. Mort had been unable to find work as an architect during the Depression, so went to work as a drafting engineer for General Electric, stayed there until he retired. Bill had not seen much of his brother, even though they were living relatively close to one another for the first time since they were children. Quote, he was pretty square, regular sort of guy. We didn't have all that much in common. He couldn't read my books. Yeah, I don't. Th- I don't think any of my siblings would read my books. No, uh, my my siblings don't want anything to do with me half the time with some of the shit I say. So yeah, we're the black sheep. Uh huh. 
1983, Bill's lease on the Stone House came up and his landlord wanted to increase the rent to $400 a month, which Bill thought was too high. They managed to raise enough money to make the down payment on a small $28,000 bungalow. In September, Bill moved in. It was on an acre of wooded ground on a quiet street, ideal for cats. Shortly before Bill moved in, the white cat disappeared, so it was just Bill and Ruski who who relocated. Burroughs was to live in this house for 15 years. Yeah, he's still got 15 years to go. And how sad is it that he's treating these cats better than he treated his own son? He loves these fucking cats. He spends hours just like making their food in the morning. Oh, he loves these fucking cats. It's the longest he ever lived anywhere. He wrote seven books there, produced over 2,000 artworks, artworks, finally had a home. After all these years, finally has a home. At around 70 years old. Yeah. Life in Kansas obviously was a strong contrast to New York City. Though James had many old friends in town, they are all considerably younger than Bill. Almost all of them were straight, and most had little interest in drugs, except the occasional joint. Took a while for Bill to establish his own friendships with them, and when he lived in the Stone House, out of town... He was quite lonely. He had to remake himself in order to fit in. He concentrated on his interest in guns, weapons, snakes, dangerous wild animals, paintings, and cats. Cats alleviated some of the loneliness. That's kind of a thing that you see about him. Is He is kind of able to adjust himself to wherever he's at to kind of fit into whatever social nook that needs filling. Yeah. You know, he did it with the Beats when he first met them, and then he did it at Tangier, did it in London, and Paris, and now again in Kansas. Because it's been a while since he's had to adjust himself to fit into somebody else's social grouping, because usually the social grouping found him. Yeah. But he was in major cities. Now he's in... Yeah, now he's in... Li- yeah, little Lawrence, Kansas. Yeah. By Kansas City. The situation continued in uh, Leonard Avenue, where he had moved to, and though much of his shopping and cleaning was taken care of for the first six months, he would walk to Dylan's supermarket and buy frozen TV dinners to microwave and eat alone. You think all the fucking dinners that he went out and had and all the places he ate, he was such a foodie, and now he is reduced to eating frozen TV dinners alone. Yeah, that's kind of fucked up. It he spent all this time trying to fit in, and then in the very end, he's going to die alone. Oh, he dies with friends. I mean, he's got plenty of friends. He just, they don't go out of their way to come see him all the time, like what happened, like at the bunker, when the entire, you know, art community would come to see him. Or when he lived in New York and everybody Well, that's, came. that's where, that's, New, you know, bunker was New York, New, was in New York. I'm talking about the hotel. Yeah, one he was at the uh, the Chelsea Hotel in New York when he was at the Beat Hotel in Paris. He always had, or when he was in, well, the Chelsea Hotel was in London. No, the Empress was in London. People came to see him. He's not in any of those cities anymore. Yeah, he's back in the Midwest. You're in Lawrence, Kansas. People are not going to go out of their way to come see you. They have yeah. better things to do. Yeah. He had dinner guests some nights, but with no one to eat and drink with on a regular basis, he drank too much and concentrated, again, on his cats. They became a lifelong obsession. Then, 
things began to settle down. The routine was established with regular cleaners and a roster of volunteers to cook Bill evening meals. Burroughs never ate lunch, just a cracker and glass of milk. Sometimes they would all go out to dine, usually accompanied by friends, but the downside of living in Lawrence is that there were no good restaurants. The only halfway decent one was at the Holiday Inn. You laugh, but there used to be a very good restaurant at Holiday Inn not too far from here, and it was they served amazing food. I know, but I'm just before. thinking that the, the only decent restaurant is in a hotel well, in, the, you, you in think, the early 80s. You think about most of the decent restaurants around here, they're not that decent. They're, they're okay, but they're not New York quality. No, no, They're not no, no. Paris quality or London quality. Or Chicago quality. They're, they're bumfuck Egypt quality. Oh, well, yeah. So. But, I mean, before, before this virus, we hardly ate at these restaurants because you and I are better cooks than the people who cook at than these some restaurants. Of them, than some of them, yeah. But we're supporting our community and we get lazy. Well, yeah, but so. I mean. I can cook better Mexican food than the Mexican restaurant. Oh, I don't know about that. The Mexican restaurant here is good. They make good food. My your, tamale. Your, your tamale mixture and their taco mixture taste a lot alike. Well, their enchilada mixture tastes a lot alike. And my empanadas are yeah, fucking... Okay, can we... Okay. okay. For all the years he lived in Tangier, Paris, and London, Bill was used to fine dining. Things changed when he got to New York and lived in a neighborhood where there were a few good restaurants, and as a consequence, he changed his habit and began to eat at home. Finances also had something to do with it. He was a great deal poorer in New York, having being become a junkie again. In Lawrence, whenever his funds permitted, he would send away for tins of caviar, which he loved, one of his few real luxuries. Well, I got a little extra money. I'm going to treat myself today. To some uh, fish eggs. <laughs> some people, I've, I've personally never had caviar. It could be delicious. I've never had it. I would try it if it was offered to me, but I'm not going to spend that much mo- that amount of money on it because those things are fucking expensive. Well, it depends on what kind of fish you get it from, though. Like, if it's sturgis, then yeah. Ca- caviar is expensive. Off-brand shit that's not technically caviar, that could be cheaper. But caviar, actual caviar, is very expensive. When Burroughs was still at the Stone House, Dean Rippa... An animal handler he was getting to know had written to him out of the blue, offering to send him a Gaboon Viper. Quote, in fact, I told him if I didn't hear from him, I was going to send him the Viper. That was a very venomous snake from Africa. We have him at the zoo. So he responded quickly because he did not want to receive the Gaboon Viper. Burroughs loved snakes and invited Rippa to visit. He, ar- he arrived with a pillowcase full of diamondback rattlesnakes, gaboon vipers, and crots, which apparently is a very venomous snake from Southeast Southeast Asia. Later, he brought bigger examples. Ripa had, one point, brought a carload of serpents and dumped them on the floor, letting them crawl around. He put a gaboon, stiff from the cold car ride, and 13-foot king cobra on Bill's cat-shredded sofa and warned Bill... To prepare to run. Ripper worked the others, which included the Fur de Lance, South America's most deadly snake. With his stick, Bill stood near the bedroom door, ecstatic. From then on, until Bill's death, Ripper would arrive in Lawrence to look for copperheads and rattlers, 
spend a few days staying with Bill, and then take off again for Africa or South America. The Western, in the Western lands, Burroughs wrote, quote, a number among my friends, a young man named Dean Rippa. So he put him in a book for it. I really hope none of those snakes ate that cat. It doesn't say anything about any of the cats being killed by any of the snakes. Because that'd be fucked up. That would be. I think he would be very distraught if one of his cats was killed. Very distraught. Actually, I know for a fact that he's very distraught when his cats die because one of the cats does die. He has a breakdown over it. But that's what happens when you have a, you know, a pet. They end up dying eventually. So, One time, Ripa had been out collecting and left a box of copperheads and rattlers on Bill's back porch. He dropped a mouse in for them to eat and went out again. Quote, When I came back, Bill had put his hand into the cage, either to grab the mouse and move it over where the snakes could get it, or to take the mouse out. I don't know which. The snake struck and just missed him by a hair. It might have actually brushed his hand. At his age, that would have been very bad. So, he was nearly killed by one of my trips with rattlesnakes. I mean, at that age, would you give a fuck anymore? Just go for it. I guess. Jump out the plane. Who gives a shit? As with Naked Lunch, groups of manuscripts that were used in the cut-up trilogy, the years of research and work on Cities of the Red Knight, had given Burroughs 600 pages of material to use as a starter for the Place of the Dead Roads. So he always starts a book with the end with the scraps from another one. In May of that year, thanks to prolonged and intensified efforts in the part of Allen Ginsberg, Burroughs was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Much to the fury of some of some of its more conservative members. Ooh. His inclusion perhaps said more about Ginsburg's desire for the beats to dominate American literature society than any great desire by Burroughs to hobnob with the very establishment he'd been so virulently criticizing all his life. There were further accolades when Bur- Burroughs turned 70 on fe- yeah, turned 70 on February 5th, 1984 when, in addition to a series of private dinner parties, there was an enormous birthday party held at Limelight, a New York nightclub converted from a church. All Burroughs' old friends were there, including Joel Volmer's original flatmate, Edie Parker, who we haven't heard from for a long time, who called Burroughs Billy. It was the hot ticket for that night. Frank Zappa sent two dozen long-stem red roses. Lou Reed, here we're going to get to the Lou Reed, Madonna, Philip Glass, Jim Carroll, Lydia Lunch, and the whole downtown art and music scene were in attendance, including Sting and his police cohort, Andy Summers. Oh, wow. Burroughs had never heard of them and at one point told one of his friends, quote, I don't know if you're holding, but someone told me that those two guys over there are cops. <laughs> <laughs> He posed uncomfortably with them for a, for photographs. Among the hundreds of people who pressed forward to offer their congratulations was David Cronenberg. They're going to Cronenberg up the whole thing. No, fuckers. Who managed to find time to uh, propose the idea of filming Naked Lunch. Cronenberg visited Burroughs a few times in Kansas and finally wrote a script in 1989. Quote, I sent it to Burroughs to see his what his reaction would be. He hated it and threatened to sue. 
<laughs> there yeah. were, there, huh? I said, yeah, that sounds that sounds incredible. <laughs> there were more parties and more accolades when Burroughs arrived in San Francisco, where V. Vale from Research Magazine and performance artist Mark Pauline of Survival Research Labs put on a gala birthday event at SRL's huge workshop in San Francisco. James Garaholtz noted, quote, William especially enjoyed playing with the handheld flamethrower that Mark had developed, a dangerous toy, William's favorite kind. Yeah, he, he does like his dangerous weapons. 70 is a major milestone, and despite his now quite considerable fame, Burroughs was still hard-pressed for cash. He could find in his journals, quote, So now, at age 70, I have to read in nightclubs to eke out a living. An admission of how broke he was and written with a tinge of disappointment at how his life and career had gone. However, that summer, there was a dramatic change in his fortune. Ooh. He was approached by a new literary agent, Andrew Wiley, who was convinced that he could get a multi-book deal with a large advance for Burroughs. It would solve his financial problems, but it would mean ditching his old agent, Peter Madsen, who quite poss- and, quite possibly, Dick Seavers, his editor for the past 25 years. We've heard all about him through this whole thing. Burroughs was initially reluctant because the key to the deal was queer. A book that Seavers had been trying unsuccessfully to persuade Burroughs to publish for years and which Burroughs had always sworn he would never publish. He had, on occasion, even denied its existence. Also, he felt a certain loyalty to Seaver. He had gone with him from Grove Press to Viking, and they had been at Chicago Convention together with Gennett. And, over the years, they had become good friends. On the other hand, Burroughs was 70 years old, broke. Grove had never been generous with their advances, and dealing with Viking had always been strictly business. In 1979, Seavers had moved to moved to Holt, Reinert, and Winston, and Burroughs had followed him there, where he published Cities of the Red Knight in place of Dead Roads. Bill had been loyal, but it was, was strictly business. Wiley had just secured a six-book deal for Allen Ginsberg, beginning with his collected poems, and Allen felt that for Bill to have an aggressive, active young agent who was just starting out in the world would both solve his financial uncertainty and guarantee that the books would be promoted. Wiley always felt that the bigger the financial commitment, the better the publishers promoted the book. So we're spending all this money on a book, we're going to push the hell out of it. Yeah, because they want their money back. Yep. Wiley spent three days in Lawrence discussing the, discussing the potential deal. He would offer Queer, Interzone, two volumes of letters, The Western Lands, not yet completed, and two future titles as a seven-book deal at an auction. Burroughs agreed. On November 23, 1984, the New York Times reported a deal. After an acrimonious exchange with Seaver at Holt, Wiley, at Holt, Wiley finally signed with Viking for $200,000 for seven books, plus a further 45,000 pounds, about 55,300, from Pan in the U.K., Wiley took his commission, and Bill paid off his debts and was financially solvent. It did mean, however, that he would have to prepare queer for publication. The manuscript had been found in 1972 when Barry Miles was organizing Burroughs' papers in order to catalog them for sale. All previous copies of it were thought to be lost or destroyed. 
When it was offered to Burroughs for identification, he glanced at it and blanched slightly. That's queer. He turned away. Burroughs told the local Boulder paper, quote, My first reaction was, It's absolutely appalling. I couldn't bear to read it. How could I have acted in such a ridiculous manner? In February 1985, faced with the task of actually writing the introduction to the accompanying text, Burroughs was very reluctant. He had writer's block, quote, like a straitjacket. And every time he even glanced at the manuscript, he felt that he simply could not read it. Quote, the reason for this reluctance becomes clear as I force myself to look. The book is motivated and formed by an event which is never mentioned. In fact, it is carefully avoided. The accidental shooting of my wife, Joan. Hmm. That's that's the one reason he never wanted to write this. Yeah. Because this whole book points back to that specific time in his life. And it's just something he can't deal with. Yeah, but now that his son is dead and his parents are dead. Yeah, I mean, it's just something that he's going to have to suck it up and do. Yeah. In his appendix, he wrote what must have been his most quoted paragraph. After describing the events that led up to the killing, he wrote, quote, I am forced to the appalling conclusion that I would never have become a writer but for Joan's death, and to the realization of the extent to which this event has motivated and formulated my writing, I live with the constant threat of possession and a constant need to escape possession from control. So, the death of Joan brought me in contact with the invader, the ugly spirit, and maneuvered me into a lifelong struggle in which I have had no choice except to write my way out. It was the first time he had ever mentioned it in print and was naturally seized upon by reviewers. Queer was finally published November 1985. It's a long, long time. Yeah, it is. Burroughs became more and more attached to his cats. He postulated that the reason cats were first tamed in Egypt was not because they were good mousers. Dogs, weasels, and snakes are all better. But as psychic companions. As familiars. Yeah. He treated his own cats as such. In August 1984, James was at 7th and Massachusetts, Lawrence, downtown area, when he heard a cat mewing as if in pain. A little black cat with green eyes leapt into his arms, so he brought it over to Bill. Bill called him Fletch. Fletch became one of the stars of The Cat Inside. Aww. Burroughs said the book used cats to represent people. Quote, The point of the book is animal contact, not communication. Communication and contact are two very different things. Contact is identification and can be very painful. Communication can be forced. Contact cannot. You cannot force someone to feel. Naturally, cats entered his creative life, and as well as the cat inside, he produced a short story called Ruski. Aww. Named after his first cat, released as a limited edition book in 1984, they naturally get a mention in the Western lands. Well, more death. You ready? Brian's health took a turn for the worst, and on December 9th, 1985, he drew up a will leaving his literary estate to Burroughs. In May 86, Bill and others went to see Brian before he died. 
Brian's emphysema was now so bad that he could scarcely walk the half block around the corner to his studio anymore. He had an oxygen tank or oxygen tubes up his nostrils most of the time. Even the smallest effort sent him gasping for air. He was weak and in great pain from a tumor on his side, not yet diagnosed, but that tumor, but that turned out, as expected, to be cancer. Bill and James returned to Kansas, taking with them the brush and ink drawing that Brian had done to illustrate the cat inside. In July, Brian was diagnosed with lung cancer, was told he only had a matter of days to live. He contacted his friends, asking them to pay him a visit. John Giorno flew out and saw him. Burroughs booked a ticket for a few days' time. To fly immediately would have been much too expensive. He left too late. On the morning, July 13, 1986, Brian had a heart attack while reaching for the telephone. Burroughs did not attend the cremation in Paris on July 22nd or the scattering of Brian's ashes at the Pillars of Hercules outside Tangier on January 19, 1987, Brian's birthday. He remained in a bleak depression for several months until September when the unbreathable fog, as Garaholtz called it, began to lift. Shortly after Brian's death, Burroughs, work, Burroughs wrote, quote, Brian Jisson died of a heart attack on Sunday morning, July 13, 1986. He was the only man I have ever respected. I have um, admired many others, esteem, and valued others, but respected only him. His presence was regal, without a trace of pretension. He was, at all times, impeccable. Brian's death preoccupied Burroughs, and inevitably it made its way into his writing. Burroughs had a recurring dream, which she called the Land of Dead Dreams. Quote, Everyone I see is dead. The only thing that bothers me about the Land of Dead Dreams is that I can never get any breakfast. That's typical of the Land of the Dead. Toward the end of the Western Lands, Burroughs visits the Land of the Dead, and there's an encounter with Ian Somerville. Bill asks him, quote, Is Brian here? Ian replies, No. He's not coming. Burroughs now concentrated his attention upon finishing the Western Lands, and though much of the book features a roll call of people from Burroughs' own past, Kiki, Ian, Marker, Mikey, his mother, his snake expert friend Dean Rippa, and more obscure acquaintances like Nicholas Guppy, often under their own names, it is worth remembering that Burroughs told an interview told an interviewer a decade before, quote, it is always a mistake for the reader to believe that the first person character is the writer talking. As soon as you put someone in your book, he becomes a character. You become, a, you become separate from him. I don't have a particular voice that is mine. I have a number of voices. The Western Lands is like a summation, a great roll call of his characters, his sets, his ideas, juxtaposed and rearranged in a final literary collage. Throughout the book, people and places from his past flicker through the pages, a kaleidoscope of moving images, like an animated version of his photographic collages from 1963, Tangier, or a a speeded-up film of his scrapbooks from newspaper clippings, photographs, images, torn magazines. When the book appeared, Burroughs' critics seized upon the ending, where it appears that Burroughs is signing off as a writer. He writes as if he was already dying, with his past flashing before his eyes. It ends with, In Tangier, the parade bar is closed. Shadows are falling on mountains. 
Quote, hurry up, please. It's time. After completing the Western Lands, Burroughs concentrated more on painting than on writing. At the end of 86, he, re uh, he rented a studio housed in a dilapidated barbed wire factory on the Caw River waterfront to paint and write. Diego Cortez contacted Burroughs and arranged to visit him with the artist Philip Taff. Taff. A lot of A's and F's in Taff. A lot more than you think. T-A-A-F-F-E. Could be Taffy or Taffafe. Tatafa. Jeffafa. <laughs> In order to work on a catalog text for Taff show at Pat Hearn Gallery in New York, they arrived on January 31st, 1987, and James made appropriate arrangements for Burroughs and Taff to work together. Taff brought with him some cans of spray paint, something Bill had not previously encountered. Quote, we strung this can, red paint, front of a piece of wood, shot it up, it exploded beautifully. Perfect. I didn't have to do anything to it. He called the result the red skull. Ooh. I know. It's a lot better than sore shoulder. Yeah. Spray cans worked in a more satisfactory manner than paint cans. His first one-man show opened at Tony Shafarazi Gallery in New York on December 9th, 18, 1987. At first, Bill and James took virtually every exhibition opportunity that was offered. They wanted the show to work and sell it. Hey guys, have you been trying to grow out that beard? I know it took me a while to grow mine. Let me tell you about the people over at thebeardstruggle.com. They have the ultimate collection of beard growth and care products for guys who are just starting their beard journey and only have a little bit of stubble, all the way to men with glorious chin locks all the way down to their belly buttons. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 365-day money-back guarantee. And now, if you use my coupon code KevinY15 at checkout, you'll save an additional 15% off your order. So go to thebeardstruggle.com or use the link in our show notes and get everything you need to keep that face fur healthy. And don't forget the code KevinY15. That's K-E-V-I-N-Y-1-5 for 15% off today. Go. Now, Odin demands it. Burroughs also continued his film career. He was in Robert Frank's 1981 Energy and How to Get It, a documentary about inventor Robert Lightning Bob Golka, who received money from the, Car from the Carter administration to develop cold fusion energy. Bill plays the villainous energy czar, wandering around smoking a joint, muttering lines like, quote, he knows too much, we better shut him down. In Twister... The 1989 comedy about a Kansas family after a tornado strike. He played an unnamed old geezer doing target practice in his barn. The family are looking for Jim, but Bill tells them, Jim got kicked in the head by a horse last year. He went around killing horses for a while until he ate the inside of a clock and he died. What the fuck? <laughs> That same year, he had his best role of all as an old junkie priest in Gus Van Zandt's Drugstore Cowboy. Gus Van Zandt was also director of Burroughs' most successful short, A Thanksgiving Prayer. As if a new career in painting weren't enough, 75-year-old Burroughs now got involved with opera. Several years before, Howard Bruckner had introduced Burroughs to Robert Wilson, and now in 1989, Wilson approached Burroughs to collaborate on an opera called The Black Rider, The Casting of Magic Bullets. Based on the German folktale 
Der Freschutz, or The Marksman, to be performed in Germany. It's the story of the devil's bargain, which is always a fool's bargain. It was perfect for Burroughs. A file clerk is in love with the huntsman's daughter, but to obtain her father's permission to marry, the clerk has to prove his worth as a hunter. For the hunter was getting old and wanting to wanted to maintain his legacy. But the clerk is a lousy shot and only brings back a vulture. On his next trip to the forest, the devil, Pegleg, as he's called, appears to him and offers him a handful of magic bullets. With these bullets, he hits anything he aims, aims at, but the devil warns him that, quote, some of these bullets are for thee, and some are for me. As his wedding approaches, the clerk begins to get nervous as there is to be a shooting contest and he needs more bullets. He goes to the crossroads and the devil gives him one more magic bullet. See where it's going yet? Mm -hmm. At the contest, he aims at the wooden dove, but the bullet circles the assembled guests and strikes his betrothed and kills her. The clerk goes mad and joins the devil's precious victims in the devil's carnival. So that's very William S. Burroughs esque. Yeah, and that's yeah, very German folktale. Very, very German. Most folktales are German if you really look at them. And Disney usually takes out the very German parts of them to make them <laughs> to make them accessible to children. Whitley Stryber, the author of some successful horror stories, had written books about his purported abduction by aliens. We actually watched a we Hellier that documentary that we're watching on uh, Amazon about all the people going about the alien stuff, the little gray men running around people's yards. Oh, yeah. This is the guy who wrote that book that a lot of that stuff was based off. Oh. The book has flying saucers in it, but does not speculate how many mammalian creatures wearing the current earthly fashion or blue overalls managed to travel to Earth at speeds far in excess of the speed of light, but it does suggest they are possibly earthlings in origin. The dead somehow manifest. Visitors from the future, visitors from other levels of consciousness or dimensions, and so on. Burroughs made the obvious connection between the people Stryber experienced and his own possession by the ugly spirit and wrote a letter to Stryber saying he would love to contact these visitors. 1990, Bill spent the weekend with them. Quote, I had a number of talks with Stryber about his experiences. Bill was a little upset that the alien made no attempt to contact him. Bill said, quote, I think I am one of the most important people in this fucking world, and if they would had any sense, they would have manifested. <laughs> oh, he stopped believing in Scientology because he could see through the bullshit, but he can't see through the alien bullshit. Hey, there's no, there's no proof that they do or don't exist. Cronenberg, can't think of, can't not think of Rick and Morty whenever I hear Cronenberg. Yeah. Cronenberg completed the fifth draft of a script for Naked Lunch on January 20th, 1991. Bill read it and telephoned his approval. He still had his reservations, but recognized he was dealing with Hollywood. Writing in September 1991, before the film was completed, Burroughs said, quote, I was dismayed, naturally, to see the scenes that David wrote in which Bill Lee shoots his wife, Joan. But on reflection, I feel that the scenes in his script are so different from the tragic and painful episodes of my own life from which he drew his inspiration, that no intelligent person can mistake the movie for factual account. Hmm. 
Burroughs had other misgivings, writing, quote, for reasons best known to himself, David chose to treat the homosexuality of Lee as somewhat unwelcome accident of circumstance and plot rather than an innate characteristic, whether this is because of David's own heterosexuality or his assessment of the realities of making and releasing a multi-million dollar movie or other factors, I cannot say. Multi-million dollar movie. As filming got underway in early June, early June, Burroughs and James were invited to Toronto to visit the set. Another close friend, much younger than the others, was Michael Emerton, James Garaholt's lover since 1985. To quote James, Michael was a curly-headed, hard-drinking 19-year-old from Kansas City. His adopted mother had died when he was 16, and he never recovered from the loss. Burroughs and Emerton took to each other immediately, and Michael loved William and his cats. Michael was a holy terror. That's why William loved him so much. He was so much fucking fun. Everywhere you went with him was like trouble. In the end, he troubled himself to death. But man, there was sparks shooting off him. And if you got into beef with him, you know, good luck. He was real mischievous, man. He was a playmate. He was a great playmate. Tom Pescio, Bill's longtime assistant, be known as T.P., described how Bill and Michael would play around with demonology. Quote, it was real, totally real. Bill was like a real shaman. He would be really into something, even though he kind of knew it was bullshit, but he'd kind of have fun with it. He'd go off on kicks, and some of them were kind of silly, but at the same time, he was like a 12-year-old kid, still able to make believe. He didn't seem uptight with stories some people have. It's hard to recognize William from other eras. He had a unique ability to reinvent himself every decade. Well, I mean, he had a big imagination. Yeah. He, was, he definitely wasn't a boring person. No, he was just very fucking strange. Yeah. Burroughs did not think he had another book in him when he completed The Western Lands in 1987, but certain themes preoccupied him, and he began writing them down. The resulting book, Ghost of Chance, was finished June 91. Burroughs did not see it as a continuation of the trilogy. Quote, this is something quite different. It certainly is not any sense to be regarded as a continuation. He told Nicholas Zerberg, What's in there? The whole matter of lemurs, Madagascar, and also Christ. Who was Christ? Did he actually perform the miracles attributed to him? Yes, I think he did. As you know, the Buddhists are very, very dubious of miracles. They say, if you can, don't, because you're disturbing the natural order, interfering with the natural order with the incalculable long-range results. He discussed this issue with Allen Ginsberg at Naropa in March 87. Quote, It's so basically unspiritual, Allen. Jesus seemed to be a perfectly healthy boy. Suddenly, at the age of 30, he breaks out in this rash of miracles, performing the most irresponsible acts. He started by bringing back the dead. Whatever for? What a dreary and materialistic concept. Curing lepers walking on the water. For Christ's sake. Wow. Burroughs had been experiencing tiredness and chest pains for some time, and his doctor had given him nitroglycerin pills to take with him when he went on reading tours or to art openings. Toward the end of June 91, he spent five days in Toronto, during which he had several bad attacks when he went to see the, the, you know, the filming of the movie. Quote, excruciating pain, 
radiating down, radiating down the left arm and up to the jaw, popping nitro pills like peanuts. It comes in waves and nails you down. Burrow saw Dr. Hybert, who sent him straight to the hospital, saying he should never have permitted Bill to go to Toronto. Another three or four days, and he would have had a massive heart attack. Dye x-rays showed that a major artery was 98% blocked. Damn. Six days later, at St. Francis Hospital in Topeka, he received an angioplasty and opened the narrow artery. It was soon clear to Bill's cardiologist, John Habert, that Bill needed a coronary bypass. Back at St. Francis, he was given a shot of morphine in his shoulder near his neck. The nurse told him, this is morphine. Bill said, fine, shoot it in, dear, shoot it in. <laughs> the doctor wrote on his chart, quote, give Mr. Burroughs as much morphine as he wants. Oh, my God. James was there two hours before the dawn operation and held his hand when he was on the gurney. James remembered, quote, it was just him and me. I was there when he woke up from the anesthesia. That's family. While trying to get out of bed unassisted to use the bathroom, Bill fell and fractured his hip, giving a scream that was heard through several floors of the hospital. He was allowed to go home after three weeks. And was probably addicted again to morphine because... Well, he had nowhere to get it now. Kansas wasn't a place where you could just go get drugs as well as you could in New York. After the operation, Bill was incapacitated for some time and was unable to feed himself. Allen Ginsberg came to stay and help him out for a while. In 92, Burroughs became very interested in Indian shamanism and took up an offer by his friend Bill Lyon, an anthropologist who specialized in shamanism, now lived in the Stone House, to arrange a sweat lodge purification ceremony for him. Allen came to stay for it, but James held back, not wanting to experiment in religious practices. Burroughs felt that the ceremony did more for him than in all his years of psychotherapy and in identifying the ugly spirit, and if not, banishing it, giving him more control over it. He was exposed to Native American culture all the time because the Haskell Indian Nation University was not far from him, and he could hear their dance from his backyard. The shaman himself was Melvin Bastilli. Doesn't sound very shamany to me. No, it doesn't. A Dene elder Navajo from the Four Corners area of New Mexico. Oh. Melvin. The ceremony consisted of, among other things, the shaman putting water on hot stones to create steam several times over the next hour or so inside of a makeshift hut in Bill's backyard. Bastilli said some prayers, they smoked some tobacco, and then the shaman put the red-hot coals in his mouth one by one, swallowing them and then regurgitating them. Saying that they had captured the ugly spirit, he picked, one up, he picked up one of the coals and touched Bill with it. Bill didn't feel any pain. In fact, he said, quote, As soon as he began using the coals, I immediately felt better. Now, the ugly spirit was in the fire pit, and Bastille concentrated on sending it back to whoever or whatever put it in Bill in the first place, an animal, possibly, or more likely, a malevolent person. Once more, he wafted smoke at each of them, separately, and prayed. Burroughs was moved by the ceremony and kept repeating, Yes, yes, of course, thank you, I am grateful. 
maintaining his customary good manners until the very end. The heat and the smoke were too much for him. He be- he begged, please, please open the door. I need to get out. The shaman said it was the toughest case he'd ever handled. For a moment, he thought he was going to lose. He wasn't expecting the strength and the weight, evil intensity of the spirit, or entity, as he called it. Quote, the same way the priest in an exorcism has to take on the spirit, some of them are not strong enough, some are killed. Wait, you don't believe in uh, evil spirits possessing your body, babe? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I've seen a lot of exorcism movies, and <laughs> I don't... Let's base everything we believe off what movies we've seen. No, I mean... I know what the Bible says. I know what Catholicism says. And, you know, it's mostly Catholics that do. Um, the Vatican has a has a whole thing set up for exorcism. Yeah. So uh, it's not many other religions that because if if other religions are going to do an exorcism, they have to go to a Catholic priest. Well, to... other you mean other other denominations, other yeah. sects of. Yeah, Christianity. Yeah, there are other other religions that do exorcisms just in a different way. Yeah, but they're mostly like in other countries, not in this. Well, I mean, this is a Native American. You know, Native Americans have a whole different system of of belief. Yeah, but we also watched that. Uh, oh, what was that thing? Uh, the guy that had the the cult or whatever, and they were doing the steam huts, and people were dying in the desert. Oh yeah, he. But that wasn't a religious thing. He was a uh, wasn't so much a cult as it was a, a just a money grab, a scheme. Yeah. He was one of those. Um, I can't remember his fucking name. But he was a like a life coach almost. Yeah. And he's telling people coach. to come out, you know, and they had to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to come out to this hut, and uh, people ended up dying from dehydration and heat exhaustion because they had the the uh, the, the giant tent closed off and it was 100 some odd degrees in there and they weren't they couldn't move or leave or anything like and that. they couldn't breathe yeah and that's yeah but that, that's like what Burroughs is going through right now yeah but this he, he was able to leave if he wanted to and they didn't tell him he couldn't he was able to get up and go in the opinion of Bill Lyon who had arranged the ceremony quote it scared Bestelli on a deep shamanic level he entered into the purification of Bill's spirit and in in cautious, overconfident manner. Yes, he got the bad spirit. He knew he got him, but it hit him harder than he anticipated. Burroughs asked Baselli what the spirit looked like. He said that it had a white skull face, but no eyes. There were some sort of wings. Discussing it the next day, Alan asked Bill if he recognized the image. Bill said that he had identified it many times in his paintings. He had shown some of them to Baselli, who had immediately recognized the spirit in the swirls of abstract brushwork, pointing to it, saying, there it is, right there. On November 4th, 1992, Michael Emeritt committed suicide, using a gun given to him by Burroughs. James found the body. He and Michael had been together for eight years, and though they had recently broken up, the effect on James was devastating. Bill gave him some methadone, which helped. That night, James stayed with Bill. In the middle of the night, crawled into bed with him, weeping. Quote, we were weeping together in each other's arms, spooning, and somehow slept through the night. Burroughs dedicated my education to him. 
My Education, published in 1995, was transcribed into a working manuscript by Jim McCrary, assisted by David All, over the period of several years from a collection of scraps of paper, index cards, and sheets of one-finger typing, and was reviewed and edited by James. The characters are now familiar roll call of the dead. His mother, the eating of his mother's back dream. His father, his brother, Ian, Brian, Anthony Balk, Mikey Portman, Joan, Billy Jr., Kells Elvins. Other from, others from the past include Jack Anderson, Lucian Carr, Gregory Corso, and Alan Watson. The action, such as it is, takes place in sets from his past, such as Wheeler's Restaurants in Old Compton Street, Soho, where he used to dine with Francis Bacon, Panama, Mexico City, Boulder, Lawrence, the Parade Bar in Tangier, 44 Eckerton Gardens, the rooming house he stayed in when he was taking his uh, epimorphine cure in 1956, Portland Place, a block from where he grew up, Ian Somerville dominates the book with more than 20 references. Something Sometimes they make it, sometimes Ian refuses. Ian's presence in the book is overwhelming, the failure of their relationship, one of Burroughs' biggest regrets. Brian features almost as much as Ian. Always there on the edge of his thoughts, Burroughs makes a sen- sentimental association between his cats and the women in his life. It is a book by a largely contented old man, sorting out his memories, assessing his life. Quote, Today, as I made my bed at 10 a.m., I am thinking that I am by and large a very happy man. Now that the evil spirit's out of his body. I guess. Working with David Cronenberg introduced Burroughs to a new audience. The fans of Rabid, Scanners, and Videodrome now added Burroughs to their list of cult figures. His work with Tom Waits and Robert Wilson had consolidated his position as an elder statesman, elder statesman of the edgy avant-garde, and filming with Gus Van Zant gave him even more mainstream exposure. Burroughs was now famous and had to handle the downside of fame. Mostly, this involved dealing with fans who somehow found out his address and turned up on his porch unannounced. He shouldn't give out his address. Most celebrities don't, but people find out anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. He usually had one of his support team there, so they were not too much of a problem. Then there was the visiting celebrities. Chris Stein from Blondie, Patti Smith, the members of Sonic Youth, who visited him several times, the second time bringing along Michael Stipe from R.E.M. But the most celebrated visitor was, and we had talked about this before we even started doing any of this, I, I said, he does an album with a huge songwriter and artist from this time period. And you took a while to guess it, who it was. Do you remember who you guessed? No. You will here in a second. Was I right? You were right. The most celebrated visitor was Kurt Cobain. Oh, yeah, yeah. A huge Burroughs fan with whom Burroughs made a record. The collaboration was Cobain's idea. Burroughs, of course, had no idea who he was. He had never heard of Nirvana. Bill recorded a text called The Priest They Called Him, which I listened to. The, the it, It's a weird recording, but the, the story is actually pretty fucked up. They recorded it at his house on September 25th, 1992, and it was sent to Cobain in Seattle, who overdubbed a guitar, 
Cobain was delighted and wrote in his journal, quote, I've collaborated with one of my only idols, William Burroughs, and couldn't feel cooler. It's really neat. Encouraged, Cobain then faxed Burroughs asking if he would play a crucifixion victim in a promo video for Nirvana's next single, Heart-Shaped Box. Burroughs politely declined. This is perhaps not surprising as the opening scene of the video in Cobain's script ran as follows. Quote, William and I sitting across from one another at a table, black and white. Lots of blinding sun from the windows behind us, holding hands, staring into each other's eyes. He gropes me from behind and falls dead on top of me. Medical footage of sperm flowing through penis. A ghost vapor comes out of his chest and groin era area and enters my body. Cobain had a lot of you know stuff going on. Yeah, I, I can tell. Cobain's wish to meet Burroughs was granted in October 1993 during the first week of Nirvana's tour when his tour manager, Alex McCloy, drove Kurt to Lawrence. McCloy remembered, quote, meeting Williams was a real big deal for him. It was something he never thought would happen. As they drove away, Burroughs said to James, quote, there's something wrong with that boy. He frowns for no good reason. <laughs> Burroughs later described the meeting, quote, Cobain was very shy, very polite, and obviously enjoyed the fact that I wasn't awestruck at meeting him. There was something about him, fragile and engagingly lost. He smoked cigarettes, but didn't drink. There were no drugs. I never showed him my gun collection. Burroughs commented upon his death, quote, The thing I remember about him is the deathly gray complexion of his cheeks. It wasn't an act of will for, Cor for Kurt to kill himself. As far as I was concerned, he was dead already. Yeah, that uh, Kurt Cobain didn't kill himself. No, so the I don't have it in here. the The priest they call him is. It's about a priest who is an addict, of course, and um, he's spending like it's Christmas Eve, and he's spending his entire night trying to find a score. And he finally finds one. He's knocking on all these doors. He finally finds one. And before he can go back to his room and shoot up, he runs into a kid who is also in withdrawals. So instead of taking it himself, he gives it to the kid so the kid doesn't go through withdrawals. And then he goes to his room, lays down on his bed, and dies. That's, I mean... It's a, it's a very interesting story. It's It's good to listen to. The guitar behind it is all kinds of craziness. It's not just like a regular riff. It's like it's like he plugged in his guitar, put it on overdrive, and then just started hitting it with a hammer. You can get it on you can get it on Google. I know that. You can probably get it on Amazon Music or any of those places. So I I'd say go listen to it because it's it's something else. The first large scale musical accompaniment of Burroughs' work came from the album Dead City Radio in 1990, produced by Hal Wilner and Nelson Lyon, where Burroughs' readings were variously accompanied by Sonic Youth, John Cale, Donald Fajan, Lenny Pickett, Chris Stein, and others, all of which were good preparation for his collaboration with Tom Waits on The Black Rider. Allen Ginsberg's health had been in decline for some time. He had had heart trouble and had fainting fits caused by his diabetes. He had hepatitis C, but he also had cancer of the liver. The cancer had metastasized 
everywhere and was untreatable and incurable. Allen was told he'd have from three to six months to live from onset, but they did not know when the onset was. Allen said, quote, that sounds like too long. His father, Louise, had died, or Louis, I'm sorry, had died from the same disease. One of the first people Allen called was Bill, who wrote in his journal for April 3rd, quote, he says, I thought I would be terrified. Instead, I am exhilarated. And, quote, then it hits, a world without the voice of Alan. Alan drifted into a coma and died in his bed on the Lower East Side loft April 5th, 1997, just two days after Bill wrote that. He was 70. Burroughs wrote, quote, Alan Ginsberg died this morning, peaceful, no pain. He was right. When the doctor said two to four months, he said, I think less. Alan was Bill's oldest, dearest friend. Alan's belief in him, in him had got him first published. Without Alan, the Naked Lunch would not have been written or assembled. It was Alan who persuaded him to move to the Beat Hotel, which was, in his words, quote, the most productive time of my life. It was Alan who, seeing him in a state of stasis in London, got him back to the States. Alan's death precipitated a deep depression. Jan July 29th, 1997, he was again feeling depressed because his beloved cat Fletch had recently died. TP and Bill were walking by the garage where Bill had his Toyota parked outside. TP saw Fletch under the car. There were flies buzzing around his face. Bill called out, Fletch! Fletch! But TP told him he was dead. It was as if he had been punched in the sternum. Bill took a step back. He was distraught. It hit him harder than any human death. It was as if the death of the cat reminded him of all the deaths of all of his loved ones, which were many. Yes. Three days later, Bill had a heart attack. About 20 minutes after his first drink of the day, he was seated in his green writing chair by the bedroom window, writing his journal when he had had a coughing fit that precipitated a heart attack. It was discovered by T He was discovered by TP, who was cooking dinner for him that night. TP showed up at 4 p.m. with the groceries, banged on the door, and shouted their old joke, Don't shoot! Bill was in his bedroom, hunched over in agony, clenching his chest, grimacing and groaning. His almost bald head emerging from his huge green army jacket like a turtle. He said that his heart hurt and he had taken nitroglycerin tablets. TP called 911, then called James. Bill was still lucid. TP said, quote, hide the guns and the drugs. And Bill grunted, yeah. <laughs> TP recalled, quote, he had weed and had a gun on him. And when paramedics come, they don't want to see a gun on an 83-year-old guy having a heart attack. Not good for anybody. Bill had his, hid his 38 under his pillow. James arrived, followed by the paramedics. Just as Bill was being loaded into the ambulance, Pat Connor, who had dinner nights with Bill, drove up. He got out of his car, walked over to Bill, and asked him, quote, what's going on? <laughs> Bill replied, quoting Byron Jisson's line, back in no time. They were his last words. Aww. TP wondered if he knew then what, that he was going to die. Quote, 
He was interested in last words, and he had last word books. I don't know if he had it prepared. Bill lost consciousness at, as the ambulance pulled away. Dean Rippa, who was visiting Lawrence, had been expected for dinner and came to the hospital. James asked TP and Dean not to inform anyone, feeling that well-wishers would be a hindrance to those in those critical hours. Bill lasted out the night, but never regained consciousness. The next day, James, TP, Dean were still at the hospital. The nurse looked up, looked at the wild spikes on the EKG and told them, quote, he's starting to go. William Seward Burroughs II died 6.50 p.m. on August 2nd, 1997, surrounded by James, TP, and Dean. Normally, when the hospital staff are sure a patient is dead, they remove the body from the ward, but James negotiated with the nurse staff to allow him to rest undisturbed. They were reluctant until he explained that he was a Buddhist, lying, and in that tradition, it is thought that the soul is much slower to depart from the body than an observer might think. He hoped for six hours. They gave him five. Okay. There was an open coffin viewing at Liberty Hall, a little theater around the corner from Eldridge Hotel at 644 Massachusetts and 7th. Burroughs was placed on center stage. Burroughs had wanted to be buried in the family mausoleum in Bellefontaine Cemetery. He signed the reservation papers himself and paid the $500 donation towards upkeep. A few days before he died, he said, a Thursday, he said at a Thursday night dinner, quote, I don't want to be cremated. I want to go down in the ground and rot. Bill's body was driven to St. Louis in a procession, including two white stretch limousines. Burroughs was buried August 7th in the Burroughs family plot at Belfontaine Cemetery in St. Louis, Block 37, Lot 3938, with his favorite handgun he named Snubby. Wow. Next to his grandfather, his mother, his father, his Uncle Horace, the morphine addict. The grandfather's name, William Seward Burroughs, was the only one on the mausoleum. Later, James had the name of all the interred Burroughs family members carved onto the obelisk and installed two bare gray granite benches for visitors to sit on. He applied for special dispensation to erect a footstone at Bill's feet. It reads, William Seward Burroughs, February 5th, 1914, August 2nd, 1997, American Writer. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the long, crazy story of William S. Burroughs. Yay! There's a lot of, like, there's a lot of names I didn't put, like, um, the, the, the band, The Soft Machine, got their names from The Soft Machine. David Bowie, his whole Ziggy Stardust look, he pulled from the Wild Boys. Uh, I mean, there's so many other huge celebrities and huge musical influences that I didn't even name in there because it's already so fucking long. But, yeah, he was, I mean... We we read his story, we hear his story, and we're thinking, God, kind of piece of shit. But he was, without him, you wonder, well, how many other people were inspired by him that we love? Yeah, and then you think, you think that at first, and then, then you get to thinking, because that's the way I think, a lot of people, a lot of musicians and writers that were inspired by Burroughs, I think, how sick 
and twisted were they? Well, look at Kurt Cobain. Yeah, but I mean, Kurt like, Cobain had a fucked up head. The Rolling Stones and the there's a whole thing on there about he's the I'm, Beatles. There's a lot shit. of stuff in here about the Rolling Stones that I I didn't cover because it didn't really have a whole lot to do with the story. But he he pretty much kept ghosting them. They wanted him to come do a whole bunch of stuff, and he's like, eh. the fucking Rolling Stones. Mick Jagger personally wanted him at his wedding, and he turned him. He just didn't show up. He wanted him, that, uh, he was supposed to go on like a cruise or something with the Rolling Stones and a bunch of other bands. And he goes, that's not really my scene. And he just didn't go. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking ridiculous. But I, I, I told you guys going into this, this is going to be long. It's going to be fucking nuts. Hold on to your butts. And did I lie? No, I mean, <laughs> this is, it was incredible and just... This this man's story is the reason for this show. Because I don't think... I, I mean, you can look on, like, biography.com, Wikipedia, and get, get, you know, tidbits of shit. But to really get into depth into his life, it, it was crazier than I think most people realize. So hopefully the rest of the stories to come after this aren't a letdown. I don't think we'll get to another big crazy one like that until we're, like, do, like, Ernest Hemingway or some shit like that. But that's a long ways away. So uh, we got a... Whole nother uh, author coming up starting next week series. Haven't decided how long that one's going to be. Uh, still doing all the research and, and writing the scripts out. Um, we're going to go back uh, a ways in time. The furthest we have gone back so far is how we will go back. We'll be in the, the mid-18th century. So we're going far back. Um, it won't be the farthest back we ever go. And Shakespeare was before that. And, you know, all them, you know, there's a few of them before that that we will get to at some point. But so uh, be prepared for that. It won't be as long as this one. It won't be as crazy as this one. But, um, you know, picking up. I good think parts. we all need a, a break from the pedophilia and the drugs and just some sort of none of that in the next series (laughs) hopefully none of that author normalcy barely any sex in the next series a little bit but not much in the next no pedophilia no pedophilia good (laughs) none of that more think less drugs and pedophilia more um revolution and freedom fighting okay okay Okay. so we're gonna take a full 180 and go a different way with it okay okay well fuck you know, let everybody catch their breath before next week. So let's go ahead and uh, throw out those socials real quick so people can get a hold of us. Okay, on Instagram and Twitter, we are at Audio Parfait. We are at Open a F I N G Book. Open an effing book. I am at E C J B A T. I am at Young E T A M, or Young E T A M six uh, on one of them and one of the other. I keep trying to change them and it, it, it tells me it changes and then it doesn't change. So just look up young ETAM and it'll come up on both of them. Yeah. Uh, email us info at audioparfait.com. Uh, literally any, anybody you want us to cover, anything you want to say, we've got, uh, we've gotten a couple of emails uh, and, and messages and stuff for various podcasts. Um, got some authors getting a hold of us about maybe some interviews. So we're looking into doing that, looking, maybe doing a second show. Um, throughout the week for that for that type of stuff and to just talk. So email us and let us know what you think, what you'd like to hear. Go to our new revamped website. I worked hard on it, so I hope you guys like it, at uh, audioparfait.com. 
uh, go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash audioparfait, if you think that we deserve a little bit uh, for all the work that uh, we do. And donate. We got a bunch of different tiers. If you go know, a, a dollar a month all the way to like fifteen dollars a month. So if it's nothing to break the bank, if you can afford it and want to throw us some money our way, we'd be very appreciative. Well, Stephanie, we're done for the day. Yeah, we're done, all right, for, the we're day. done for the day. Alright, that's Stephanie. I'm Kevin. Take care of yourselves, take care of one another, and between now and the time we get to talk to you again, do yourself a favor. Open a fucking book. Alright, I'll see ya. Bye guys. <laughs>